Welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. Well, actually, it's just another episode of Pop Culture Double Date because we podcast a couple of days ago for Shazam. But uh, we're podcasting tonight again because Game of, Game of Thrones Season 8 just landed. Hooray! Yay! Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we're pretty excited for it. We're all really big Game of Thrones fans. If people hadn't noticed before, given the number of references Gerald puts in his game of, in his movies uh movie commentary uh relating to game of thrones um yeah we're huge game of thrones fans so we're super excited to be podcasting about this season the final season of game of thrones um i think it's going to be quite a short season six or seven episodes is that right I think six it's, episodes six episodes mm. so one episode down already so this episode, season, uh, season 8, Episode 1, Winterfell. This is going to be a full spoilers podcast. I'm joined by Gerald, Anager, and Maggie. Say hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello, everyone. Um, and we're going to run this this week, not by going through impressions, but we're going to go through this episode bit by bit, and then we're just going to talk about our thoughts as things happen, basically. So, Anager has been very diligent, and she's taken notes, so well, I'm going to throw it over to her to um, tell us what happened this episode. Great, and before we even go to the plot, we have a brand new opening sequence, right? Did you guys notice that? Brand new oh, sequence? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so... I don't know what you guys noticed, but we I've only seen it once, so what I caught was we, we had a we had the wall with the hole um, cut carved out of it. Um, we had Winterfell, we had the tree, the red tree that John stands in front of. We had the crypts. So I think the crypts are gonna play a really important role this season and they're already you know, they've already set the scene for a very climactic scene this episode. Um, we have the throne room with a dragon door. I'm not sure if that's the normal door, but this door had a dragon's head on it. Um, and that's what I caught. Did you guys uh, have anything to say about the opening sequence or anything? There was a... So, firstly, I thought the new opening sequence was great. I love the fact that it makes it feel like this. this is like high stakes. This is like the end of the game, the, there's a new opening sequence which was so much different from the older opening sequences. So all the older opening sequences were quite high-level strategic views of the various cities you visit. And this season, they've used the same sort of artistic premise, like um, the sort of the, like the way it's animated, so it looks like these areas are building up, but they've sort of zoomed into specific areas within um, these cities, essentially, right? So I love that. I thought it was like, I thought it was, it made, the, it immediately sets the tone that this is a special season, right? So I was like, oh, I'm so excited. Mm. Uh, um, I think the only other thing that I picked up in the opening sequence, and again, I've only seen it once as well, is that, did you see at one point that there was a, was it a lion and a man holding yes. a head oh. or something like yeah. that? 
There was yeah. a lion on the sword. Is that where you saw the lion? Yeah, and then there's well, a, and then there's this other picture of a figure, and I thought he was holding a head out, but I, I couldn't be sure. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know. This could be this could be just like me hallucinating, or I <laughs> got to watch it again. We have to watch yeah. that again, right? Yeah. No, I yeah. saw that as well, and it was in it was on one of the. You know how they have the crest, and it's sort of rotating around this fire. Yes. So it was um, like one of the parts of the. I guess the um the the circlets around the, the sun crest. yeah there's a bit when yes. it pulls back and it, it shows the sun and there are things rotating around the sun yeah 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 all right and any, any other comments on that or shall we head straight to the plot well just just briefly i think the most one of the most intriguing things about this intro sequence is that unlike in previous seasons where all we ever saw was the um the exteriors of buildings uh, in this intro sequence, we're taken inside the crypt at Winterfell and inside the throne room in the Red Keep. Mm. Um, uh, and it, it's it's an interesting contrast to uh, not just previous seasons, but also to the um, reliance that the show increasingly has on big spectacles. So whilst on the one hand you have the show increasingly reliant on spectacle, on battle sequences, on special effects and CGI, particularly with um, the dragon riding. Uh, the, show, the intro sequence itself has taken us inside the interiors of buildings, and particularly um, the, the rooms where, to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda, the rooms where it happens, so the throne room and, um, and the crypt. So um, I think uh, the show is reminding us ultimately here that whilst there is a lot of uh, we're going to be treated to a lot of spectacle. Um, ultimately, this is a show about the quiet moments, about the drama between individuals, and about the about the exercise of power. Um, and uh, and I think that there's, there's some thematic work being done in the, in the intro sequence in a markedly different way from what occurred uh, in seasons past. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, Anija, lead on. All right. So the episode starts with a little boy, very reminiscent of Bran in Season 1, Episode 1, running through the streets of Winterfell. He, there is an army marching along the streets, and he's trying to get a look at them, and he climbs up a tree. And from his vantage point, we can see the Unsullied marching through the streets of Winterfell. The people of the North are standing watching. They look very... They don't look happy. They look very glum about it. Um, they look very weary about what's going on. Um, and then we see Arya with a bit of a smile on her face waiting for Jon to arrive. Um, and then we see the army part, and the first person we see is Daenerys. Um, and then very quickly we see Jon by her side. Arya is watching Jon, has this huge smile on her face, but he doesn't see her. Um, next is the Hound. Arya's face falls a little bit. And then we see Gendry, and another massive smile um, appears on Arya's face. Um, we see Danny and um, John riding, and the dragons suddenly fly in, and the people are terrified, and they start scrambling. Arya smiles when she sees the dragons because, you know, these are things of legends that she's read about and dreamed about. Um, and then when Danny notices the effects that her dragons are having on the people, she does one of her classic Daenerys smirks. And I'm already starting to worry for her because I'm very worried that she is just <laughs> too enraptured by her own power. 
power when all of that power comes from these two dragons. Um, so then John and Danny um, meet Sansa inside Winterfell. Um, John sees uh, uh, Bran, first of all, and just gives him this beautiful fatherly uh, hug. Yeah, he just grabs Bran's head and pulls him close and gives him a, a big kiss. And, you know, John's reunion with both Bran and Arya, um, which will come later, just really bring out the humanity in both of those characters. And these are characters that have kind of lost their humanity over the episodes. Um, so that was beautiful. Um, then John introduces Danny to Sansa. Danny, you know, put, puts on full Daenerys charm, including calling Sansa beautiful. Sansa is just well beyond this at this stage. Um, she's cold <laughs> to Danny. She's not having a bar of it. <laughs> and then the this part, the sequence ends in the um, in the room where all the business gets done, the room where it happens, um, and we see uh, Lady Liana kind of calling the elephant in the room, getting up and saying, John, you've left a king. We made you a king. You've come back. What on earth are you? What have you done? Um, and John is trying to justify what he has done by saying that it was a choice between the crown or the north, when we all know that it was not that choice and that John did willingly bend the knee because he fell in love with Daenerys. Um, so that's that part. So What did everyone... Yeah. So to add to that part... Okay. Well, I'm going to shoot because I have, I definitely have something to say about this part. So I think for me, this whole opening sequence, I've, I'm kind of on the edge with Daenerys, right? Like mm. I kind of started Game of Thrones and I really loved her character, right? Because she, she, she was in season one, in season one, she was like this sort of person that was put in this horrible circumstance and she fought her way out of it with her, um, intelligence and her perseverance and her determination so i really love danny's character but over the seven seasons especially as she's gotten the dragons and she's become the queen she's become kind of arrogant right yeah and this scene for me demonstrated exactly why sansa is awesome and danny sucks <laughs> basically mm. right mm. because you've got this scene where sansa to be honest is cold towards Danny because she's sitting there and she's administering Winterfell at this point in time, right? Mm. She's figuring out the logistics of how do I get all these people, feed them, and then, like, fine, you are in the field doing the fighting, but I'm managing everything, right? Like, I can understand why she would be stressed and surly and, like, not particularly, like, charming, right? And Daenerys just thinks she's entitled to these people yeah, that she's never met before and hasn't given anything to. Exactly, right? And then, and then Sansa brings up these really valid points. So you've mm. brought, all the, brought all these people here. How are we going to feed them? Yeah, I made mm. a contingency for grain. How are we going to feed them? That's a really valid point, right? Like, and then she also brings up the thing of, that's great that you have the dragons. How are we going to feed those things? And Daenerys comes back with this super flippant, really arrogant response, yeah. which is just like, anything they want. Or, like, what do dragons eat? Anything they want. And I'm just and like... What does, <laughs> and what does this remind us of? But that scene back when those dragons killed that little child and had to be, you know, had to be chained away. Because yeah. you cannot have that flippant attitude towards the power you hold. Yeah, exactly. Especially when, fine, 
it's shown that Danny and Sansa don't see eye to eye. But the problem here is that it's not that Sansa is just being bitchy. She actually legitimately has a point, right? Like, I, I don't necessarily feel like the question she asked was an unreasonable question or was just trying to provoke Danny. I felt like it was a reasonable question for someone who was kind of at their wits end who was managing this thing out and is like oh my god now i have all this other stuff to figure out as well right like so yeah like her response for me that was like there were numerous moments in this episode where danny kind of has that flippant arrogant tone and every time it just really rubs me in the wrong way but anyway like well one of one of the things that the show is keen on exploring and has been throughout its entire run, and this may be a reflection of the source material as well, is the difference between acquiring power and governing, exercising power wisely. And what Sansa has been doing thus far is governing, um, administering and running the government of Winterfell, trying to ensure that the population, and both, both permanent and transitory, are fed, um, and dealing with the seemingly mundane questions that um, the more glamorous Daenerys Targaryen has never really bothered to, con- to concern herself with. I mean, we've seen in previous seasons that she's very good at conquering cities. She, 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 she took over cities, you know, all the slave cities in, in Essos. But when it came to governing them, when it came to um, winning the loyalty of the local population and making sure that the state and the machinery of state didn't fall apart on her watch, she was utterly hopeless. Um, and that that was never more vividly um, conveyed to the viewer than in Marine. So um, the, the show, I think, is telling us that governing is really hard, and it's, and it's, it's hard because you have to attend to stuff that may seem boring, that may seem less glamorous, that, makes, that may not tickle the the sense of grandiosity uh, that a ruler might have. But it's necessary and it has to be done. And funnily enough, the scene cuts away and concludes before anyone offers a question to Sansa's question, uh, offers an answer to Sansa's question. Mm. So that, that, that very important question remains unanswered. And it's sort of the silence is pregnant with meaning. Mm. Um, and I think... So, um, the, the character of Daenerys Targaryen, once appealing, um, is very much sort of detaching himself, herself from the realities of government. And we'll see that again later in the episode when she's confronted with, the, with having to tell uh, Samuel Tarly of the fate of his uh, brother, brother and his father. So, you know, there are decisions that are made that have unintended consequences that have to be considered. And she never she never considers them because for her the immediate impulse because she has such awesome instruments of power in the form of the dragons is simply just to um, use brute force in order to overcome whatever governing problem uh, confronts her when uh, the world is more complex than that. So uh, I think the show is increasingly tuned, perhaps less attuned than it was in the past. But well, no, no, no. Let, let me let, let me withdraw that. The show is attuned. Um, to the realities of government versus the the acquisition of power, and um, ultimately, because the sh- because the show is called Game of Thrones, 
some part of of everyone's focus is directed to how power is acquired and the the game that's played in acquiring power. But um, we must never forget, I think the show the show tells us that um, there there are cities here being governed. There are populations that have to be fed and boring things that have to be done. And um, if if you if you are if you have this grand vision of yourself as a man or woman of destiny, um, it can all come a cropper. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, mm. Thanks. Well, I was just going to say, I think um, this episode, particularly with Sansa, it's, it's kind of showing, you know, it's the beginning of season eight. It's the last season of the series. Um, there's lots of, um, you know, polls going around, people betting on who's going to survive at the end of the season. And it, but also it's as much about who do we think are the real contenders for the throne? And Sansa's really coming up as someone who could, you know, actually do a really good job. Um, and someone who, you know, I personally have never thought about as being a potential contender for the throne, but maybe she is. Um, and she's demonstrating she would actually do a good job. So. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, like, she's a different type of, as Jerry did say, she's a different type of ruler to Danny, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting. Like, it is a show where you have a lot of different styles of leadership. So, I mean, it feels, the way they're positioning things is almost that Sansa would make an amazing hand of the king, right? Because in the past, pretty much all of the rulers of Westeros have been non-administrative types. They've been the more... Um, the conqueror types, the sort of the the salespeople types, I, I guess, mm. right? The the front men types, right? And the hand has been the one that's kind of been left in the background, doing like mopping up and doing all the admin and making sure that the kingdom is actually run. So definitely, Sansa, I feel like is positioning herself as a really capable hand of the king, um, which is a little. Like, I mean, later on, she... I mean, Anager will get to this, but later on in the episode, she bumps into her ex-husband, Tyrion. <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? But that, <laughs> that actually happened. Like, that she was married to him. And he was also a hand of the king. So it's like, well, maybe... Anyway, Anager, do you want yeah, to... Can I, can, I just, can I just finally say that perhaps in the difference between Daenerys and Sansa... We also see something of the difference between charismatic leadership and transactional leadership. Mm-hmm. So Daenerys leads by force of the her connection with the supernatural, the dragons, the fact that she emerges out of fire unburnt, which perhaps might be a metaphorical um, uh, stand-in for um, leading by charisma, because those mm-hmm. who are touched with charisma seem to be able to uh, gather followers around them almost by dint of some supernatural power, whereas someone who deals with the more mundane realities of day-to-day transactional leadership has to, you know, administer the state, do the deals, and make sure that the, tra- the trains run on time. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the show, I'm not sure whether that's intentional or not, but there are uh, moments when uh, the difference between those leadership styles, charismatic and transactional, uh, seem to make themselves make themselves felt in the um, in the narrative. Mm, mm, mm. Agreed. Manager. All great points. All right. So then, a scene that we have all been waiting for since season one. 
the Aria and John reunion. John's standing by the tree. The, is, is, does that tree have a special name? Is it just a weirwood tree or I don't know. He's standing by that beautiful red tree um, and Aria creeps up behind him. Um, and initially they have this very cold kind of, John says, how did you sneak up on me? And Aria, um, I can't remember what Aria says to him, but very quickly the masks slip and they just beam with happiness and joy and Aria gets teary and they embrace. And like, like I said initially, you know, for some time now we've seen Aria's humanity just slip and slip and slip away from her and she's become this very kind of scary, like I love Aria, but there's a really scary, ruthless coldness, um, cold-heartedness to her. Um, but when she sees John and they hug, you see all her humanity and her love um, for him and her family. And it was really heartwarming when John said to Arya, you know, I could have really used your help with Sansa. And Arya says about Sansa, she's the smartest person I know, which, you know, going from seeing those two sisters fight so much to seeing them come together in the end and, and, the mutual respect that they have for each other, or at least the respect that Arya clearly has for Sansa. It's um, just really great to see. And Arya talks about our family, that she's protecting our family. Um, and again, this is kind of like the payoff of that journey she had with the Faceless Men, where she tried so hard, so hard not to have a family and to be no one. And the strength of that family, Paul, and the people she loves, it was just too strong. Um, and now she kind of just owns all of that and claims all of that. Uh, so any thoughts on that scene, guys? Um. Yeah, so I, I like this scene also because I like... Look, I think you kind of touched on this. I, I really enjoyed how Arya stood up for Sansa. And look, I'm starting to sound like a bit of a Sansa fanboy. And this is the first season that I've genuinely said, man, Sansa is a force, right? But, like, she is. And what I loved about it is that basically Jon is kind of irritated at Sansa because in the last last season like um and this season as well sansa has just basically been in his ears just basically nagging him right like and just but he naysaying. will not listen to her exactly like, right. he will not listen to her she's yeah. Yeah, she, even though even though she won the battle of the bastards for him yes yes absolutely right and she is basically she's like naysaying him but from a good place like nothing she's saying is necessarily wrong right or self-serving or whatever it is right so it's really nice to see Arya basically John is basically bitching about his sister to Arya and Arya is basically putting him in his place right it's like mm. you know in a nice sort of way in a way that is not particularly confrontational and is loving but basically saying look you know she's pretty clever maybe you should listen to her a little bit right so i thought that was that was great and i loved how um so because aria and john naturally had a stronger relationship it's this is kind of like how family units get built not every individual with the family unit will be super tight with each other because but because there are like these linkages that exist between individuals like through those other individuals though the family link strengthens right so even though sansa and john directly might not have the strongest of relationships because sansa and Arya are have a strong relationship now and because john has a strong relationship with Arya, the implication is that like 
his bond with Sansa is strengthened as well. So I thought that was a pretty interesting scene, and I I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I, I think this episode is full of these sorts of scenes where, um, strange. Well, I mean, not strangely, but it, this episode is basically an entire episode where it's just characters that haven't seen each other for seasons reuniting. <laughs> so yeah, we and get that's a lot of why these. It was scenes. So satisfying! Right? It was such a satisfying episode. <laughs> um, Mags, what were your thoughts? Um, I I think what really struck me about this scene. I, I totally agree with what Darren was saying. But also at the end, uh, you know, Arya reminds him, you know, when he's saying that I also, um, I'm also doing this for my family. And they hug. And then she says, don't you forget that? I thought mm. that was a bit, that was quite prescient, particularly, you know, with how the episode ended. Mm. Yes, especially since, yeah, you've got Danny coming in and all this other stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Don't remember where you came... Don't forget where you came from, really. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, Andrew, should we push on? Now, the, the Sansa Tyrion well, actually, reunion was... Just I've... briefly, I, I haven't yet had my say about that scene. Oh, sorry, um, sorry, sorry, Jerry. Uh, I, I, look, I think it, it, it fits within a pattern of, a, of a, probably a trilogy of moments in the episode when, as has already been pointed out... Um, some measure of humanity is restored to Arya Stark. Uh, for many seasons now, she's just been something of a relentless killing machine and good on her. That's kind of awesome to see. But at the same time, we've seen seep away from her um, connections with fellow human beings. And this episode, we see her re- restoring her connection with John and being sort of fiercely familial if not tribal and later in the episode we see her get even somewhat flirty with with gendry so um it is actually refreshing to see Maisie williams um showing a bit more range than she had in say season five uh just in the brief span of this episode so i think um uh for, for those of us who were concerned that Aya stark would simply become a an unfeeling sociopath which she may still be to some extent, there is at least some restoration of um, her ability to feel connected with other human beings in this episode. And I think that's, a, that, I think that's, um, that's something that will, um, I think, stand the show in good stead simply because otherwise her, her character was becoming a bit too one note. Mm. Mm. Agreed. Yes. Awesome. That's a really good point. I, I think that, that point about Arya's humanity is really... Uh, we, we all really needed to see that, I think, from Arya. So the Sansa-Tyrion uh, reunion, it either happens before or after the Arya and John reunion. It might even be before. Um, but it is kind of... It's really awkward. They they meet each other. They both... There's an awkwardness about the reunion. Um, I don't know that I would call it friendly, but I think there's some mutual respect between them. Tyrion points out that Sansa kind of really sort of left him in a pretty crappy situation when she just bailed right after Joffrey, after the purple wedding, after Joffrey was killed. Sansa's like, oh, well, all's well that ends well. (laughs) Yeah, Um, she has that line about, like, what does he say? He says something about how it was a crappy wedding, and she was like... Not all crappy. Yeah, it had its moments. It had its moments. 
Um, Tyrion has, and again, this is just such testament to how much Sansa has grown. Tyrion is tries to comfort her by saying, you know, we know the Lannisters are coming to fight for us, and that's got to be scary for you. It's scary for me too. You know, he's, he's it's condescending in a kind way and it, it's, it's so uncomfortable to watch because Sansa has grown so much since you know being the girl that he knew that we know she's not afraid of anything anymore because fear's just been beaten out of her after what she has experienced she's really she's got a hardness to her now that um, she didn't have when Tyrion knew her um, and that's when she then comes back at him with the line of I can't believe you are dumb enough to think that Cersei is going to come and fight for us I used to think you were the smartest man I knew and it's a massive it's a massive slap in the face really (laughs) and before I I turn this over to you guys I just want to say um a a point that Maggie sort of raised earlier about Sansa maybe being the person who's alive at the end of all of this I totally think Sansa is going to survive them all and that is reminiscent of something that Tyrion said in season two or three when um, he sees her political cunning for the first time with Joffrey, that she will basically, not so much political cunning, but the fact that she will say what she needs to say to survive and she will hold her emotions in when she needs to to survive. And he says, you know, Lady Stark will survive us all. And I think that's definitely um, a foreshadowing there. Mm. Max, what were you going to say? Oh, uh, very simply, I think that was the best scene. That To me, best scene in, in the episode. I loved it. I loved it. It's almost, you know, like the student has outgrown the master. Yes. Because she outgrew Littlefinger. She's outgrown Tyrion. She's outgrown John. She's she's rising above all of them. Like, I was so proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think the scene, is something of, the scene is something of an answer to one of the problems that a lot of fans have had in recent seasons, I think, with the character of Tyrion Lannister, which is that from about, say, the Purple Wedding onwards, he, he has gone from being one of the smartest characters in the show to quite possibly its very dumbest. He keeps um, making mistakes, right? Because he's a hand of the king, and he keeps making these... No, Jerry, keep going, you're right. If you think, if you think, of, if you think of the last season, call after call, he got completely and utterly wrong and this is in such marked contrast to season two now a lot of people have said have complained about well what happened to Tyrion? has he gone from like political genius to complete dud um you know sort of in sort of kim rudd style and um <laughs> and you know who, who knows why obviously um at about the at about the time when the when the show diverged from the novels when um there was when it had run out of source material, the the showrunners made a decision to um, give, to whack um, Tyrion over the head with a stupid stick. And um, whilst it's un, it's been unsatisfying to watch, it is at least not a mistake on the part of the showrunners. I think this scene tells us that the showrunners actually consciously decided that Tyrion was not going to be such a clever man after all. And so when uh, Sansa says. I thought you were. I used to think you were the cleverest man in the world. Um, she's not. She's not merely voicing her own sentiments. She's she's conveying something that the showrunners are trying to tell the audience, namely that you know whatever whatever you might have thought of season two, King of the Hand, Tyrion. That Tyrion Lannister is long gone, and he is if if he is if he's a fool, 
it's not because we're we're making mistakes in the way we've we've written his character. It's because we think he's a fool. Mm. It's a more complex game now. Like back when he was King of the Hand, back in King's Landing, it was a simpler game, and he's showing that in this more complex world, he's making mistakes. Yeah, look, I, I mean, to be fair to Tyrion, like, he has sound justification for the calls that he makes, and I think the reality is that I, I don't think he is portrayed as a full fool, right? Like, in that he's making horrible choices with no information and just randomly acting on them, right? I think he does act on information with, like, act on good information, but the way things pan out and the way circumstances, it's just the way the way of circumstance, right? Like, his bet doesn't eventuate, essentially, right? So, um, yeah. It's... But it's not, it's not just a bet. Like, you know, sort of... Everyone agrees that the, the the dumbest thing that happened in season seven has to be the magnificent seven or the dirty dozen going beyond the wall to get white in order to try and convince Cersei <laughs> to, to join arms with the entire crew in order to fight the white walkers. I mean, blind Freddy could see that that was a stupid mistake, and it was and it was Tyrion as hand of the queen who signed off on that completely and utterly dumb idea, an idea the consequence of which was that the Night King has a friggin' ice dragon and brought down the wall. So um, I think, I think you know, despite the fact that Dinklage is a charismatic performer and Tyrion has a lot of residual affection from the audience because in seasons past he was so witty and so awesome, he is, A, not quite as witty as he used to be, and, B, uh, responsible for some of the dumbest calls in the history of the show. So um, when when Sansa delivers that that final blow to conclude the scene it is i think you know sort of it lands with with full force because it, it is completely and utterly correct look I, I do agree with this idea that Tyrion is increasingly being sidelined and i don't know if it's i think so anager i think you'll, you'll get to this but there's a scene later on with davos Tyrion, and varus mm. Um, and we will. I, I will, we'll talk about that when we get to that scene. But definitely, I, fe- I do feel that Tyrion, like from a showrunner perspective, that th- there's definitely less of a focus on him. Where in the earlier seasons, he was uh, the main focus. Well, not the main focus, but a central focus. Basically, since he's become Hand of Daenerys, he's kind of become a more, like, sideshow character, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. But anyway, let's, mm. let's, keep, let's keep moving. So... The plot now thickens over at King's Landing. Uh, <laughs> Kyburn tells Cersei that the, the the White Walkers have broken through the wall, and Kyburn thinks he's delivering bad news. But Cersei smiles as she looks upon her fleet. Um, so Cersei's plan is that the everybody else is going to fight the White Walkers, and their numbers are going to be depleted, and they're going to win, but their numbers are going to be depleted, and then Cersei and her army will fight everybody else and win. Um, next thing we see the big ship with all the um, the golden company on it we see euron he's on the ship and finally we see yara and we finally get an answer to the question that's perplexed me which is why has euron not just killed yara like the only person who could really challenge his claim to the throne and apparently the answer is that hey he just needed some conversation and some family, so. <laughs> this is so dumb this was so dumb 
I know. So Yara tells Euron he's on the losing side, and Euron says, yeah, maybe, but, you know, we'll just change with the wind if we need to. But meanwhile, I'm going to go have sex with Cersei. So next thing, we see Cersei in a very lonely-looking throne room, barely anybody there. I think it's Kyburn and the Mountain. Um, Euron is pretty much, look, look what I've given you. He's given her 20,000 men, 2,000 horses, zero elephants. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's true, zero elephants. I'm I'm pissed as well. (laughs) Cersei is a little bit disappointed, but she will take what she can get. Euron now wants to kind of consummate the uh, partnership. Um, and initially, Cersei is, no, you will wait until, you know, I'm ready for it. But then she has um, a change of heart. I think she probably thinks it's best to keep Euron as close on side as possible at the moment. I imagine that's why she has the change of heart. It's not It's not clear. So Euron disappears into Cersei's bedchambers with her, and the scene cuts to Bronn, who I'm thinking is going to be the comic relief um but what quickly happens in that scene with bron um is that kyburn turns up and gives bron cersei's orders to execute both her brothers meanwhile just to finish off the cersei scene um we see we cut back to cersei's bedchambers euron is just zipping up his pants Cersei is drinking wine. Now, what do we think is going on? Because I'm thinking she was never pregnant. Um, now, I'm not saying that you can't drink a little bit of wine when you're pregnant, and especially in King's Landing, maybe you can. But what I am saying is that last season, <laughs> <laughs> last season, she made it a point to not be drinking the wine. Um, was that just to make it obvious to Tyrion that she wasn't pregnant, that she was pregnant, or, you know, what's going on? The fact that she's drinking wine is a thing, right? It means something. Um, and I think it could mean that she was never pregnant. She made it up and told Jamie that in an attempt to keep Jamie close to her. And obviously she told Tyrion that she was pregnant, or she, she wanted Tyrion to believe it so that he would um, uh, believe her plan to join uh, to join the Northerners. Um, so, what do you guys think about uh, that scene? Hmm. I, I, what do we I, think about Cersei ordering the execution of both her brothers? I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't really surprised. This was one scene where I thought, was it really necessary for them to go into that much detail at this point? Um, but it's almost there's, like... There's six episodes, Max. There is six episodes. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I like, it kind of feels, it kind of felt like, you know, all the different pieces were being marshaled together into their starting positions for, you know, for this season. And mm. they were trying to sort of cover off on all the main characters that people like or, uh, you know, have grown fond of over the last um, seven seasons. And Bronn is one of them. So how are they going to get Bronn to the north to join the company? That's kind of what it felt like. More than that, more than that, though. Like, it felt... I mean, the fact that, like, Cersei is asking Bronn to kill Tyrion and Jaime, like... It feels a little bit contrived because you know that Bronn's shtick is basically he's a mercenary with a heart of 
gold, kind of. I guess it's, <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. He's like a yeah. he, like everybody loves him, but he's also like a mercenary, right? So basically, it feels like the showrunners like, oh, we're gonna put Bron in the ultimate moral quandary. Is he going to give up his best mates in the world, or is he gonna do it for the money? And he keeps saying he because, because you know all like ever since the beginning. Bronze Stick is basically, he keeps saying that he does it for the money, and yes, he does do it for the money. But then yeah, he also. Yeah, and he abandons Tyrion when Tyrion can't pay him. So, in a way, he has always done it for the money. He, he does, but then he also abandons Tyrion because he knows that he can't beat the mountain, right? Like, he's, he's very yeah. clear about that as well, right? So, it's kind of yeah. like, okay, like, we're just going to make, put Bronn in the ultimate bad situation. And. Look, in some ways, I kind of felt like that was inevitable. It's You know that it's as inevitable as something like Clegane Bowl, right? Like, you know that this is what they're going to do because this is the foundation <laughs> of these characters, so we're going to put them through these situations. So, in some ways, I wasn't particularly surprised. Um, I do love Brondo, so I guess kind of sucks because <laughs> I want Bron to have a happy I really like Bron right so there are a lot of me too there are a lot of like idiot male characters in Game of Thrones that I really like the other one that I really <laughs> like is the 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 wildling guy the beat oh, torment yeah. giants but yeah, oh, he's, yeah. he's freaking amazing right like all these idiots who you're like I really want that guy to survive. <laughs> Surely the greatest of all those characters is Pod the sex guy. Oh, and oh, Pod, yeah. exactly. There's this group of dudes that I'm just like, if they survive, it's fine. It's fine. They can just go live in, like, a little village separately and just be awesome, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I felt like the Bron thing was clearly, like, this is... Like, this is the drama of his character, and we're going to manipulate it for everything that it's worth, right? Um, I guess in terms, of, in terms of the whole Cersei stuff, though, like, I thought that was pretty good, actually. Like, I, in, I actually really enjoy Cersei as a character, because she is a villain, and everybody, like, she's morally, like, a vacuum, essentially, right? But she's a really interesting villain, right? Um, and... I thought the great thing about this scene was, um, I think Lena Headey is amazing as Cersei, and there is this little bit right at the end when Euron leaves the room, and Cersei has this look on her face, and it's a little, this mix of shame and disgust, which I thought was perfect, right? Where it, it's kind of like she, no, like, she obviously did not like having to do what she did, but it's just mm. like, she's so much of a badass that she just does it, right? She's like, I have to do this because I'm the bloody queen. So there's there's this sort of, there's this moment of pathos there where you see that expression change on her face just as Euron leaves that I thought was, you know, very humanizing of, um, of Cersei as a character. And I think Lena Headey did a great job with that scene. Mm. Um yeah, Lena Headey is, is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the range of the woman. Uh, not so long ago, we watched Fighting with the Family, and there's Lena Headey playing someone who's very cockney and very rough. And then, to, and the, I just sat through the entire movie thinking, this is Cersei Lannister. Um, she can do anything. And uh, uh, you're absolutely right when you say that 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 look on her face that, that just closes out the scene. Um, 
conveys so much about about um, Cersei at that particular moment. I think what's curious about Cersei has always been the fact that she's nowhere near as smart as she thinks she is, and um, you know, upon being told that you know there is this army of the dead that's brought down the wall, she's like, awesome, good, and it, it never occurs to her that that an army that's strong enough to bring down the wall that has stood for what thousands of years um, and is uh, kept there by dead of some supernatural force is an army that could not just wipe out um, her enemies uh, but also King's Landing and her regime uh, but hey whatever she's 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 so focused on sort of preserving power for its own sake in the in the moment and what's always been intriguing about Cersei is just how myopic she is you know there are there are moves that she pulls which seem like good moves in a particular moment but come back you know not in the not too distant future to, to bite her in the bum um, not least of which was the was her momentary alliance with the high the high sparrow so I think we are seeing um, another manifestation of that aspect of her character um, and you know I'm not sure whether I'm not sure that's particularly satisfying because uh, you know it, it shows that you know, she, she hasn't grown at all in fact she's become she's become worse in her tendencies and she's now extremely isolated completely utterly dependent upon Kyburn and the mountain and I suppose that's another aspect of the show's meditation upon power that those who who have it can so frequently isolate themselves and become incredibly myopic um but you know her, her character seems to be sort of falling falling in this trap time and time again and she's not she's not demonstrating growth and an arc in the way that say jamie is or jamie has uh so i think she has been one of the more, more interesting characters in the past i hope and pray that there is something more to this than just Cersei pulling another move that seems really smart in the moment but is actually really stupid um, because that would be an extremely... that would do Lena Headey an extreme disservice. I agree that there's an element of Cersei's villainy that is really unsatisfying. Um, Cersei's whole shtick is if she can't... If she can't rule at all, she is happy to have it all burned down. And she has never really grown from that position, even though it's a really um, destructive one. Um, and you would think that the death of her three children, and particularly Tommen, and the way he threw himself off that ledge as a result of one of her plans um, gone awry, or her, one of her plans gone exactly the way she wanted it to go, you would think that there would have been some growth um, as a result of that, but instead she's doubled down. And that lack of growth in any character is, is a little bit unsatisfying. So I agree. Yeah. Any thoughts on that before we move on? Oh, could I quickly ask, is Cersei pregnant, yay or nay? Mags, where do you weigh in? I don't oh. I, I think she is, and the thing is, I, I didn't interpret the expression in the way that you guys interpreted the expression, because I thought, um, well, I've always assumed that she was actually pregnant, or that she is actually pregnant, and mm. that, that little smirk on her face was more... Was, I'm already pregnant, yeah. I, I'm because already she... pregnant. Mm. Yeah, and how am I going to play this? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So 
So yeah. it's more like another angle for her to to um, to use if she needed to. That yeah. was kind of what I was thinking. And I guess the other thing as well is, you know, that, that the difference in the relationships between families. So, you know, that the the, um, the Starks are a pack family. They're, collect- they're a collective and they act in that way. Jamie and Cersei had always been tight, but now she's isolated and alone. Theon and Yara have still man- ma- managed to maintain that family connection. So it's it's kind of like it's interesting seeing how the different units are coming apart and coming back together again and how that builds on um, their their claim or their ability to survive over the next six episodes. Mm. So, mm. Darren, pregnant, yay or nay? Uh, I'm going to say yay because, look, to be honest, I didn't even notice that, that she was drinking alcohol, so that was a great pickup by Anna Jo, but I'm going to say yay because one of my theories depends on her being pregnant, so oh, I'm going to double down on that. <laughs> Gerald, yay or nay? At the risk of boring everyone, I'm going to say yay, she is pregnant. Um, okay. I think the if we if we expect, if as we expect um, Jamie Lannister kills Cersei with his bare hands, then the moment will be far more poignant um, if he's also killing his own child. Um, but um, it, the, the fact that she's drinking wine is not inconsistent with her being pregnant. She obviously doesn't want Euron to know that she's pregnant because you, she, I think she reads that Euron, part of what Euron wants is not just to rule, but to um, to begin a dynasty of his own, and he can't, he, he can't do that with her if she's pregnant with another man's child. So if, however, she can seem not pregnant, for example, by drinking alcohol, and then tell him, hey, presto, um, there's there's a bun in the oven, which is yours, um, she would be able to manipulate him um, much more readily than if he knew that she was already pregnant with, an, uh, with another man's baby. Mm, mm. I'm sticking with Nay, but let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the worst part of the episode. <laughs> Theon. <we>? Yes. Oh my <laughs> Theon, God. Theon Greyjoy. Theon, suddenly a few arrows have wiped out everyone on the top deck of one of um, the Golden Company's ships. Theon breaks into the room where Yara is held. She looks at him with complete shock. He, um,. He uh, cuts the rope that is binding Yara. Yara gets up, takes one look at him, and headbutts him to the floor, which was very satisfying. Um, and then she gives him her hand and, and lifts him up, and all is forgiven. One headbutt later, all is forgiven. Um, we next see Yara and Theon on um, safely on their own ship. Yara's plan is to go back to the Iron Islands because... Technically, it's an island surrounded by water. We don't think we know. We have good evidence that the whites and the white walkers don't seem to be able to cross water, um, and so the plan is for them to uh, wait there. And if Danny needs a place to retreat to, then she'll have that place. Um, Theon clearly wants to go fight for John, and so Yara lets him go. Now this is ridiculous because it happens with such ease. He is able to rescue Yara with such ease. How he even knew which ship she was on, I don't know. But with such ease, and it's everything is over very quickly. But having said that, I really don't want to see any more of Theon than I absolutely have to, and so I'm all for it. What did you guys think? Um, yeah, I, I agree. This was a weird scene, and I, upon seeing this scene, I immediately turned to Max and was like, what was the point of Yara getting captured? Like, what happened? <laughs> she got captured and basically got released 
it seemed like the whole point of her getting captured was so that Theon could have a redemption arc, which he kind of already had. <laughs> kind of, mm-hmm. right? He only so, needed a redemption arc because we let her be captured in the first place yeah. without trying to fight for so her. So it was really <laughs> weird. It was just like, well, what was the whole point of that entire Yara thing? <laughs> like, there was literally no point. It was like she got captured and then Theon rescued her and that was it. It was. It was really just. It was. It felt like they it was, it out. Yeah, it was just what, like. What, what What made this particularly unsatisfying was the the fact that Theon had this real trial of fire in the finale of the last season, where he had to he had to fight a man to the death in order to be able to persuade these people to follow him to rescue his sister, and we and so the fact that he's had this this ordeal in order simply to begin this journey, would lead one to think that the journey would be an arduous one. Yes. But instead, it's all over in 30 seconds. Yes, yes, I completely agree. And so you ask yourself, what was the point point of all that? And, you know, how dumb dumb is Euron Greyjoy? Like, he's got to be. Like, he is... the, The actor who plays Euron Greyjoy is very, very funny. And he was excellent in um, Borgen playing the, uh, the the Danish Prime Minister's press secretary or whatever. Um, and his cockiness can be quite sort of abrasive and endearing at the same time in, in this show. But there was absolutely no reason for him to keep Yara alive. And the fact that this was all done and dusted within 30 seconds just makes, it, makes him seem impossibly stupid. Yeah, it, it, it felt... It felt... Okay, so I guess one of the things is that we know that we're running out of time in this show, right? There's six episodes in this show left. Five episodes after this one. And it's just like, fine, it was 30 seconds, but it was 30 seconds that was honestly... Wasted. Yeah, it was unnecessary. You didn't need it to establish... The characters already kind of had its his redemption arc. You don't necessarily need all the... Like, the whole Yara thing to... I, I don't really know what it adds to Theon. Like, I think Gerald's right. If there because, had particularly been... Because, particularly because he abandons Yara in the next scene. Because he, instead of riding off to the Iron Islands with her in order to reclaim the um, the sovereign sovereignty over the Iron Islands, he decides to, to ride off, to sail off to Winterfell. Now, in the, at the end of the last season, he could very easily have have fought this man to the death and then gathered the troops around him for the purpose of calling upon them to join him in a campaign at Winterfell in order to fight for humanity. The mission did not have to be saving Yara, because as soon as he saved Yara, he dispenses with her. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's really strange that they did have that storyline. It it feels, it definitely, for me, it feels extraneous. So, Mm. yeah. For me, it was just another, uh, similar to the bronze um scene where they realised, oh my god, we have to do something about Theon. He is a semi-important character in this universe. He's got to somehow get to Winterfell. We've only got six episodes left. Let's just do this. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
I agree. It, it felt it felt like they just needed to move chess pieces, right? So it's yeah. like, well, we've mm-hmm. set this guy up, and now we need to move him here, so let's just finish him off quickly. So. They had to resolve his relationship with Yara and then move him to Winterfell, and yeah. that's what they did Yeah. in 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. So, now, <laughs> before we move on... <laughs> Before we move on to John and Danny, we have a mini scene that um, Darren referred to before with Sir Davos, uh, Tyrion, and Lord Varys. Sir Davos is walking with the other two men, and he's pointing out that Daenerys does not have the affection, loyalty, trust, or respect of any of the people of Winterfell or of the North. He's saying these are stubborn people. You have to earn their trust. This is an excellent point. She has just waltzed in. This is different to anything she's done before. In the past, she has um, freed slaves. She has won by conquest. She's at least done something to earn people's respect or their love um whatever you might have to say about that she you know that's at least been established in the plot in some way here she's just kind of rode in with with john and you know the lessons of marine which were that you have to know your people again she just doesn't learn and she doesn't have you know, she, she's not showing that, and Sir Davos is pointing that out. And da, Sir Davos's uh, proposal, play on the words, um, is that you know they marry Danny off to John. Now Tyrion and Varys are kind of listening to this. Varys looks at John and Danny, making googly eyes at each other, and says, um, "Nothing lasts." I hope that is a prophetic statement because um, I don't really see John and Danny together <laughs> as satisfactory whatsoever. D- John's true love was Egret, and it, that is gone now. Um, <laughs> but um, and then you've got Tyrion making these uh, kind of jokey kind of lines, like um, you know, like. Someone says they're not going to listen to to two old men. And Tyrion's like, well, I'm not that old. Um, And he, it's almost like he feels a bit sidelined and he can feel the lack of his relevance and he's trying to claw onto it. What did you guys think? Well, okay. So I actually felt like this was a really interesting scene because you have actually three super irrelevant characters all together now, right? Like, characters that were super relevant and really interesting at the beginning of the show and are now just, like, sideshow characters. So it felt like... So Mags made this point to me, and I was like, oh, this is this actually makes sense. Do you know, who are the old guys in the Muppet show? You know in the Muppet show, they have the guys in the rafters? It felt like them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys felt like them because they're kind of irrelevant. They're not really part of the main show and they're just there heckling people, right? So I was like, <laughs> that was that scene. Statler and Waldorf. Exactly. Exactly. They, they were just up there heckling. It's like, they're kind of irrelevant. No one really listens to them. Davos is not a particularly confident hand of the king, right? Neither is Tyrion now. And Varys stopped really having... Like, Varys basically just became Bronn version 2, right? Because Tyrion needed someone to banter with when he was, um, like, travelling outside of Westeros. So... <laughs> Anyway, that's that was mm. that was my take on it. Mm. Anyone else? Yeah, this this scene caused me to feel absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just what a what a, what a what a blast scene involving some black characters. Now, I mean, you know, sort of uh, what what was strange about this scene was that you know, sort of Tyrion. It, it, 
the final the final shot I think of last season was Tyrion standing outside the cabin door as um, as John and Daenerys were making love on their love boat. Oh, and, the most uh, awkward and, love scene on TV. And, and, and like, you know, you know, the fact that, you know, Sadaf was, was proposing these two get married, potentially a good idea, I don't know, but the fact that it, 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 didn't, it didn't seem to cause Tyrion to, to reflect upon the fact that he, you know, you know, obviously caught the two of them making love. And so, you know, uh, I just thought, mm, this is all a bit disconnected from everything. Um, maybe something will come of it, maybe not. But until until then, we'll, it was an utterly disposable scene. Well, this scene was followed by what I thought was the worst scene, but... Oh. Okay. <laughs> the dragon rider. Oh, no way. Dragon no rider. Way. Dragon no. Rider. Okay. no way. So, Okay, okay. Max, did you want to comment on the three on the three wise men, or shall I move on? No, no, no. Let's move on from the Muppets. Okay, okay. So, we now pan down to John and Danny, who are clearly in love. But before we move on um, to the dragons, Danny raises the fact that Sansa doesn't like her. And John kind of good-humouredly says, like, you got to give her a chance. She didn't like me very much when we were growing up either. And Danny, in all her freaking arrogance, says, well, I am her queen, so she must respect me. And I'm, again, just feeling very scared for Danny because this, this is now just arrogant. She has not conquered these people, you know. She she has given nothing to these people, and she needs these people. She is now really the guest of these people, and yes, in title, she is the queen, and they are allowing her to um, act that way. But for her to really take that on board and, and think she can just sort of throw her might around around here, it's 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 not a good sign. Um, so the next thing we know, uh, we have reports that the dragons are not eating. Uh, Gerald and I both assumed the, the dragons were feeling a bit depressed because they've lost their brother, but it turns out the dragons just don't like the north, which also makes sense because it's very cold and icy and dragons are hot-blooded, fire-breathing uh, creatures. So next thing... John mounts the dragon. Now, I really thought there was going to be more to the moment when John rides a dragon than, you know, Danny just suggests that some bastard from the north <laughs> hops on one of her dragons and that's going to be just fine. Now, <laughs> I know there has been some sort of foundation laid for this because when when John first meets um, the dragons, he is able to touch them and she is stunned that this is happening. And maybe in Danny's mind, she assumes that the dragons are accepting John because they know that um, Danny has feelings for John. I don't know how she's reasoned it out, but I think it's really bizarre that she tells John to just hop on board. John hops on board and is suddenly, hasn't even watched How to Train Your Dragon, he is suddenly <laughs> just soaring through the skies with Danny doing <laughs> doing a fantastic job of riding that dragon, does not fall off once. He then lands in some uh, sort of icy, uh, sort of, sort of it's a deserted icy area. Danny lands. Um, she says, "We could stay here forever." I'm like, "No, you couldn't. There's no food. Don't be dumb." <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's this really cheesy line. Danny says, um, "I'm feeling cold or something," and then she's like, "Keep your queen warm," and it's just so gross and cheesy. Like, oh. 
like again recalling back to the days of Egret where the conversation was actually funny and sassy. But anyway, so <laughs> John and Danny kiss, and I did love this bit. Basically, Drogon, uh, yeah, Drogon glares at John, and he is not having it. He's not happy that Danny is being mauled by John, and um, there's this. Danny just tells John not to worry about it, and John, you just see him open his eyes and just kind of stare, like stare at Drogon, and I thought it was very funny. What did you guys think? Um, yeah, look, I, I like the ending of that scene. I, I agree that the scene where John is looking at Drogon is great. The, the scene when they're flying the dragons is a little bit out of left field. Like, I felt it was... I don't know, like, I felt it was really out of place. It felt like the magic carpet ride scene from Aladdin. <laughs> like, it felt like there should have been, like, Disney music playing in the background as they flew off mm-hmm. in these dragons, right? And it was really out of place because it's Game of Thrones. So, um, mm. and the other thing was that, okay, so I imagine that scene would have taken quite a lot of budget because there's a lot of CGI dragons in there. It was, it took a relatively long time in like a relatively so we know that this is going to be a short season so i was like why are they spending like five minutes flying around on cg dragons because it's what we've all wanted to see for a long time we've wanted to see john flying a dragon for a long time and it may be that there's not really going to be much more of that and so they gave us that scene Mm. anyway i I thought i I thought it was a like i yeah, I thought it was a pretty corny, cheesy scene, right? Redeemed only by the funny Drogon John thing at the end of it. That's that was my take on it. Anyway, mm. Max? I think the the cheesy. Oh, sorry. No, no, go go. No, no, you go, Gerald. Go go. I thought the cheesiness of the scene, I think, was magnified or amplified by the fact that you had these beautiful wide shots, and there was one particularly beautiful overhead shot of Winterfell with the two dragons sweeping um, across the the vista. Um, and and then you also had these close-up shots of Daenerys or Jon, and in those shots, the the green screen was pretty rough. Like it, it's it's amazing to think that they spent so much money to make these very dramatic wide shots featuring the dragons look as good as they did, and then the moment they transition to a to a to to a close-up, it it just looks pretty rough. Um, so that that made it seem sort of like an old school cheesy, crappy special effects type um, scene, uh, uh, but you know we know we know these two have eyes for each other. We saw them, we saw them on the love boat at the end of the last season. We really did not need to see um, dragon riding as a metaphor for sex. Uh, did you really but, think it was yeah. a metaphor for it sex? It was not, not Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was a metaphor for sex the way the chess game was a metaphor for sex in the original Thomas Crown Affair and really who 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 needs that in in, in a season in which we've got a compressed period of time in which to in which to conclude uh, and burn through a lot of plot so um, again I think following on from the three dudes uh, at Winterfell this this entire sequence was just blah. Uh, mm. I mean. Nice. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have to add is I kind of feel like they wasted the whole John riding on the dragon for the first time. They should have mm. used it yeah. at a more climactic point of the season. You know, they've got mm. seven episodes and they can really build into the like major battle with the Night King. And it would have, I think it would have been more badass, more effective if it was more like John 
facing the Night King with their dragons. Something like that? That would have been more satisfying. Mm. So I, can't, I felt like they wasted it. Mm. Agreed. All right. So next thing, we cut to Gendry and uh, the Hound. So Gendry has given the Hound uh, a weapon. The Hound is being mean to Gendry, saying that only losers make weapons for uh, wildlings. And suddenly we hear Arya's voice telling him to leave Gendry alone. Um, the Hound spins over, and here is yet another reunion that we've all been waiting for. Um, it's quite a short reunion. There's some tension between the two of them. Um, the Hound points out that the last time he saw Arya... She left him for dead, and Arya says, don't forget, I also took your money and left you for dead. And then the Hound uh, gives, uh, gives. I think, I think the Hound is as tender as we have ever seen the Hound be when he says to Arya, you are a cold-hearted bitch, aren't you? I guess that's why you're still alive, and walks away. Um, so I do think that was the Hound um, kind of, the Hound's way of giving Arya a hug. I would say. Um, so Arya lets, Arya lets him go. And then we have, for anyone who ships Arya and Gendry, I'm not one of those people, but um, there's some definite flirtation then that, uh, that takes place between Arya and Gendry. Um, uh, they, they both tell each other that they're looking good. They're um, sort of making jokes. Um, Arya seems quite happy around him, He's turning back, giving him some looks. Um, so I think that's happening, guys. That is happening. Um, <laughs> any thoughts? <laughs> any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I didn't really have that. I thought it was a nice scene. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, like, I, I, I enjoyed the Hound's interaction with Arya. It made sense that he wasn't, like, overly gushy or anything like that. He's the Hound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought it was... It, was, it, was, it wasn't a... I mean, this whole entire episode is basically just um, characters meeting each other again, so reuniting. So, yeah, I thought, I thought this was a sound reunion scene. It, I don't have a huge amount to add, though. So what what was the drawing that um, Arya gave to Gendry? What was the? Yes, yeah, she wants a weapon to be made. Is it something to do with the face? Is it the kind of weapons the faceless men have, or what is it? I have no idea. Like from the from what I saw, it looked like it had dragon glass in it. I guess I, I don't uh. know. I thought that she was bringing it to him because he need she needed something made out of dragon glass. She already has Valyrian steel. Yes, this is mm. true. She has the dagger, right, which is made of Valyrian and, steel. And 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 needle isn't needle also Valyrian steel? No, I think needle is just. Oh, steel. so she only has, has the dagger. But, she, but like, I mean, Valyrian steel. I mean, Gendry makes the point that Valyrian steel is like pretty rare <laughs> so the fact yeah. that she even has a dagger of valyrian steel is a pretty big thing right like it's so the wa- the water dancers and the faceless men when they fight they fight with sticks right so yeah. a dagger is not really gonna is not really her fighting style i think she needs a stick that could kill the white walkers so maybe that's what that is she's making herself a big pointy stick, stick. <laughs> can you make me a stick <laughs> with some dragon glass on it <laughs> i need a stick She's she's making, in the words of Carl Stefanovic, a long stabby thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Alright, so now, unless anyone's got anything to say about that, we're going to move to the good bits. Any last words on that? 
Oh, I just wanted to I just wanted to say that the axe that Gendry made for the hound looked like crap. It looked like a really <laughs> it looked like a pretty crappy axe. Well, I don't understand how so, they Gendry, Gendry, lift your game, dude. I don't know how this well mate, he's had to run a marathon. That guy ran a marathon from Did you see how quickly he got to the wall last season? He that guy is is like He's like the world's fastest runner. Give him a break. (laughs) And he's on a time crunch, Gerald. Like, he's making a lot of weapons. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, now this was, I think this is where things are starting to actually turn from a plot perspective. Because I don't know what you guys have thought, but even though we've seen some really big warning signs about Danny. We've been on her side and we've kind of assumed she's probably the chosen one or if if not, she's going to do it with John, but that she's not going to be side – she's not going to be swept away. It's going to be her. But for the first time, I'm starting to doubt that. Um, and so what we have is we have Danny walk down to some underground library where um, Samuel Tali is uh, studying. And she is there to thank Samuel for curing Drawer's grayscale. Um, and in the process of uh, thanking him, it is revealed to her that Sam is a Tali. She remembers then Sam's um, father and brother. And in a very kind of cold, well, very direct manner, she tells him that she's pretty much executed Sam's father. And when Sam gets that news, even though Sam's father has always been very unkind to Sam, it's still his father and his family. And you see him start to tear up, but he he holds it together and he talks about his brother. And then he finds out that he too has died and he is now really choking back the tears. Sam then leaves that place and runs into uh, Bran, who tells Sam that he has to be the one to tell John of his parentage and that the time has come. So we see John in the crypts. I think he is there to pay homage to Ned, who he believes to be his father. Suddenly he hears noise and it's Sam. Those two also another reunion, big hug. Um, Sam's still crying. John says, what's going on? What's happened? And Sam says, I guess she didn't tell you, but she she executed my father and my brother. Now, John looks quite shocked about this. Um, and, yeah, maybe a tiny bit worried. Um, and Sam says to John, would you have done it? And I think that's a question we've often we, – well, we haven't had to ask ourselves because it's been really clear and really plain throughout the seasons that while John is not afraid to do what he has to do and, um, you know, behead people when he has to, it's also clear that he's got a substantial amount of mercy to him. You know, we see that when he gives – the land back to um, people who have betrayed him in the past because children are not their father. Um, we just know that he has got more mercy to him and that he's got a, a kinder heart, I think, um, and that there's something about Danny that she just really can't tolerate it when people don't um, recognise her power and her authority. And she, even when there is a way forward where she um, could still show strength but not murder everybody, she's more likely to go down the murder pathway. Um, so 
Um, so Sam says to John, you know, would you have done it? And he, John doesn't really answer the question, but he does point out, look, I've had to, I've had to behead people. Um, but Sam kind of says, look, you need to be careful. She's not the one. You're the one. He says, you know, you, you were the king. You were always the king. Um, and then comes the big reveal. You know, John says, look, I gave up my crown. And Sam says, not just the crown to Winterfell, not just the crown to the north, but the crown to the seven kingdoms. John turns around, going, what are you talking about? And Sam says, look, Bran and I, we figured it out. Your mother is Lyanna Stark. Your father is Rhaegar Targaryen. Targaryen. You are um, Aegon Targaryen, and you're the rightful king. Now, whether this is this rightful king thing, I think this is a bit dodgy because the Targaryens weren't, you know, they weren't always the kings. They kind of just took the crown, and then Baratheon took the crown of them. So whether John really is the rightful heir, I don't know. But you know, he's got this title, he's got this parentage, um, and um, Sam reveals it. And John is completely shocked. And his first kind of comment is, hang on, my father is the most honorable man I know. Are you telling me he has lied to me my whole life? Um, and Sam says, look, he did it to he did it to protect you. And he did it because Liana made him promise that he would protect you. And that is the only way. And he reveals this to John while you see Liana's statue in the background, but blurred. Um, and I keep expecting the, the camera to pan to her statue, but it, it doesn't. Um, so what do you guys think? Well, firstly, can we just acknowledge creepy staring Bran throughout the entire episode? <laughs> He's, in like he's just waiting. Yeah. And he's waiting. He's waiting for Jamie. <laughs> like everyone. At the end of the reunion, they pan and it's Bran. In the back he's just creepy. Show. He's just this kid that's just standing there, just like he never watching. Blinks, man. He never blinks. Yeah. He's super creepy. And then how creepy was it last season when he decides to, like, wag or whatever it is that he does to... Like, yeah, he just travels. You know, he travels right and he's basically perving on his brother and his Daddy. brother and Danny who is his brother's aunt I guess like getting it on it was super creepy anyway Bran is a super creepy kid now <laughs> really really creepy <laughs> <laughs> and then the way he just like I don't understand why Bran couldn't have told John. is just like no you do it it's like Hang on, why? <laughs> like, why does because, Sam have to do your dirty work because, for you? Because Dan could turn up at any moment, and he was waiting there. <laughs> but I think it was important for to start sowing the seeds of Danny may not be all that we have thought she was, and we need to be a bit careful here. And I guess Sam could do that by talking about how she's just executed his family. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, it is. Kind but are of, we turning here? Like, is there a turn? Is John going to turn? See, I see, but it's very hard for me to see his character turn like that, right? Like to mm. suddenly say, "Well, now I have a right to the throne." Do, do you know what I mean? Because, like, mm. I, I guess one of the I think Gerald sort of um, talked about this earlier in our podcast, but part of Game of Thrones, like one of the key themes of Game of Thrones is power, the exercise of power, like, you know, what what gives someone the right to rule, 
right? I, I think this is actually something that is explored throughout this series. And, um, like, just because, like, it feels like that if, just because John is of Targaryen blood, like, there's a, I think in his mind... Doesn't was, mean he has a right to rule, especially exactly. since, not even lineage-wise, because the Baratheons overthrew the Targaryens. Yeah. Fair fight. Yeah, exactly, right? And and more than that, it's kind of like you're... It, on on a sort of even higher level, it's kind of like, well, what really gives someone the right to rule over somebody, right? Is it really just mm. conquest or whatever it is? But yeah, like, I, I think that him having that lineage does not necessarily immediately mean he, he will feel entitled. And I, I think potentially this forms a contrast between him and Danny, right? Where Danny has this sense of... I mean, I hate using entitlement, but yes, exactly, right? The sense of entitlement that she belongs on the throne. And he technically also, it could be argued, has this entitlement, but I find it very hard for his character to suddenly switch and go, well, I'm the rightful king now, bugger off everyone, I'm the king. I think what he has is a sense of responsibility. Mm. And certainly, so it's the difference between responsibility and entitlement, I guess, right? Mm. So she sees it as a blessing, as a, as a, you know, as, as a good thing that she wants. He sees it as a burden that he owes it to others to sort of execute. And I think because he sees it as responsibility, it will be possible for others around him, if he listens to them, to kind of convince him that this is his burden to bear and he needs to take it because she's not doing a good a good enough job. Mm. But I mean, he's gonna. He has to get over googly eyes for her as well, right? Because right mm. now, literally. Well, as very said, it it doesn't last. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um. Mm. Well, I mean, it goes back to what I, Arya was saying, right? Don't forget about your family. And then mm. there's a scene with Sansa after this scene where Sansa point blank. Well, I mean, we'll get to this, right? But you know, Sansa point blank asks him. I mean, like, did you do it? Why, why, yeah. why did you bend the knee, right? Like, why why did you do it? Did you really do it to save humanity or did you just do it because you were besotted? So I, I think, yeah, the, the, this may be a turning point. It's it's really hard to see, to, to read, right? We have very few episodes. There's going to be a lot of carnage in between there. He may not have to actively turn on her, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, the vicissitudes of war may do that job for him or do that job for her <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's really mm. hard to tell um yeah but mm. but fair point i mean this I, I think if if this reveal had come in previous seasons it would have been more impactful but now that we're so deep in the end game it, it's really hard to see what other moves he could have right now <laughs> with this information you know what I mean? Mm. Like, he's not going to suddenly turn on her. Like, it, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be in his character. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Gerald? Well, if there's one thing we know about Jon Snow, it's that he's never grasped for um, power. So, <clears throat> it was kind of Sam who organised his ascension to being Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He himself didn't necessarily seek it. Um, and he was, you know, made king of the north by by acclamation, rather than um, declaring himself as such in the way that Rob Stark did um, early in the show's run. 
So it would be passing strange and very surprising if, having been told this about his true identity, he suddenly does a 180 and thinks to himself, I am the true king of Westeros, and um, I am I am going to reach for, for the power to which I am entitled. And there's something there was something deeply odd about Sam calling him the the, the rightful king of Westeros because not just because um, it's the Baratheon dynasty that's currently sitting on the in, on the Iron Throne, but also because you know Sam is not someone with whom we've associated the idea that um, blood lineage confers upon you the right to rule. Mm. Um, and to hear those words coming out, his, coming out of his mouth seemed odd. And mm. to hear those words um, uh, being being directed at John is also odd because if there's one thing that this show has tried to convey to us is that John has become a leader by dint of his merits as a leader. And so why, you know, he can rise to the top, he can rise to the position of being the prince who was promised or some other form of um, messianic figure without also being the true son, the true heir to the Targaryen dynasty. Um, why, why this element has to be injected into the story of Jon Snow's possible rise to power, I don't really know and the last time a nobody rose to power the internet was not happy about it ray star wars remember but but that no but that's (laughs) very different that's very different (laughs) anager that's very different there is something about how like you know the way particularly americans watch the show and are sort of hawked on the question of who gets to sit on the Iron Throne. The fact of the matter is, despite 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 declaring themselves the world's greatest democracy, Americans love being ruled, <laughs> love the pomp and circumstance of, a, of an imperial presidency, and have a sort of latent authoritarian instinct within them. Um, and we're seeing that authoritarian instinct become more, more explicit by the day. And this sort of obsession with the the the, the 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 and bearing in mind George R R Martin he's not British he's American and so the 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 tendency on the part of the show to 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 pose the question who has the right to rule by by dint of their lineage um, only seems to reinforce I think its its quality of obsession with um, you know. Politics is a sort of game between dynasties, uh, a, 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 a sort of insider's game played between people who were born into the right families. Um, and and so, you know, and that's why I only half-jokingly say from time to time that my secret wish for the show is that um, the White Walkers are coming down to destroy the Iron Throne and bring parliamentary democracy to Westeros. Um, because there is something deeply sort of um, accommodating to the notion of tyranny in the show's occasional obsession with who sits who 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 is entitled to sit on the own throne by dint of their lineage I think it, it would the story would be a more satisfying one and one that would sort of more tickle my democratic fancies if Jon Snow were a nobody 
but it turns out that he's not. Um, and and yeah. so I'm just uh, uh, look, you know. The, the, let me digress for a moment. We, we, earlier this weekend, we saw a, a teaser trailer for the next Star Wars movie, and we found out its its title. The Rise of Skywalker, and I just thought that was such a disappointing title because the entire Star Wars saga, it seems, is now being reduced to the story of one family. Um, and this notion of dynastic succession, I've always found more than slightly offensive. And if this show is really a tale of dynastic succession in which the the prodigal son, in the form of Jon Snow, discovers his true self and a sense to the throne and a sense of the heights of power, I just think that would be tremendously disappointing. I hope the show doesn't sort of conclude in, in that way. Um, mm. I hope the show do, does tell us, does in the end resolve with us understanding that it's not the blood that flows through Jon Snow's veins as it is his character that entitles him to lead. Having said that, maybe, maybe blood is all that he's got going for him because... Time and time again, we've seen that John is actually quite dumb. Like, no, disagree. Disagree. <laughs> disagree. Like when he charged ahead during the Battle of the Bastards. Disagree. Dumb. Disagree. That was that was bravery and emotion. All right. Anyway, so, <laughs> so so something that Darren alluded to before, we have a scene where Sansa makes the point yet again. John, okay, John, you keep making decisions without consulting me. Now, the merits of those decisions and whether they're intelligent ones or not aside, she keeps making the point, you are not consulting me. He is not consulting people that it would be in his best interest to consult because he's such a lone wolf at the moment and he needs to be part of the pack, right? The lone wolf yes. dies, a pack survives. So, um and she makes the very excellent point, you know, did you really do this for the North or did you do this because he fell in love? And I think that is John's weakness. Not that he's an idiot. I don't think he is. I think he's very smart. He's shrewd. He's brave. But he's led by his emotions a lot. And as he was in the Battle of the Bastards and as he was, when he looked at Daenerys and he realized she'd lost the dragon to save him and he bent the knee and he knew he loved her. And so, you know, he, he's emotional. His, what do you guys think? His, Anything to add on that? Story? Yeah, and I think the thing is that Sansa has seen exactly what happens when you walk down this path of honor, right? Like she's seen her father mm. get his head lopped off because he was too honorable, and Sansa knows exact. Like uh, I'm like, what I love is that Sansa loves her father clearly, right? But she also knows that he did not play the game. He, she knows that there is a game that's being played, and if you want the good out, the outcomes that you want for the kingdom, and they may be selfless interests, right? That you want selfless outcomes, but in order for you to achieve that, you still have to play the game to some degree, right? And John has shown, I don't think John is stupid, but time and time again, he's shown that he is not flexible when it comes to the game. He's like Ned, right? Like, he's not, like, you think about the scene, the episode seven of last season mm, when mm. he rocks he up lie. he won't lie and it's just this i mean like Tyrion is the one who is exasperated at that point right in that scene but like everyone who's watching is also like what is go what are you doing mate like you've literally your whole plan was to bring this zombie down to king's landing and you've sacrificed one of your dragons to get here and 
now when it comes to the crucial point, you won't make this one little ethical sacrifice almost, right? And yeah, I, I think I think Sansa like what I, what I loved about that scene is that Sansa was basically echoing what everybody who is watching the show is shouting at John, right? It's like everyone wants the best for John because he is an honourable guy and he is a brave guy and he's a leader of marriage. He's principled. Yes. Yeah. But at mm. the same time, you're also like, you know, you also need to like balance that. You need to be a little bit more balanced and actually play the game a little bit, right? And I, I love that Sansa is calling him out on that. Right? And I agree. I think Sansa is absolutely right when she reads that he's he did it because he like fell in love with her, <laughs> right? Mm. Like it's it's I mean it's romantic and it's nice, but like given everything that is going on right now, it it, it seems like it's <laughs> it, it something seems a little bit out of place there, right? So. Um, mm. I think I think the thing is, every aspect of John's conduct must be judged according to the following standard, namely, would Lady Liana Mormont approve? <laughs> because she is, she has, in her brief time on the show, established herself to be its single most awesome character <laughs> and its fiercest character, and so I think she sets a, she sets an appropriate standard against which to assess John's conduct and. Uh, I think, given her scepticism early in the episode, it can fairly be said of uh, of Jon Snow's uh, bending of the knee to Daenerys and its sort of almost blind devotion to her at this point that da- that, that Lady Lyanna Mormont would not approve, and I think that about says it all. Mm. Max, <laughs> I do really like little Lady Mormont. Um, yeah, look. I- I don't know. I, I think I think John is blinded by love a little bit, and I I do agree as well that I think his greatest weakness is his honor, as much as as it is his strength. And his brother, you know, Rob died as well because he fell in love, um, and that led to the red wedding and you know what happened there. So I think the question is really, well, what what is he going to do now with this piece of information? How is the plot going to move ahead? with this information now out there, known by now Bran, Samuel, Tali, and now John, bearing in mind it's just the three of them at the moment who know this. Mm. What is, who, is it now in John's hands to say anything, and will he, because he is that honourable? Will he immediately mm. go and tell Danny, or is he going to hold that information until the very end? When so they here's to... my question. Is he going to continue sleeping with her, given that he knows now that she's his aunt? <laughs> like, what would you do in that situation? <laughs> that's that's a real question. He's gone to take a cold shower. <laughs> he's he's just going to take a lot of cold showers. Well, they are in the north, so it's very easy. <laughs> I think this is the end of them, guys, because once she finds out, I don't think she's going to be cool with it. You reckon yeah, she's not going to be cool with it? That's it. No, no, not not with the incest guy, but with it, but with his his greater. His not with the incest. So, no, so that's fine. fine. That. So yeah. be fine with that. Incest, incest. Why 
claim to the throne. Not so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the claim. Yeah, it, that's what's going to upset her. The fact that he, come on, like she is so driven by the fact that she has the best claim to the throne. She is not going to handle it at all. She's not. But I don't think she's going to tell her. I don't think he's going to tell her. Mm, let's I, wait and see because yeah. I think he is because Sam is pushing it. We can see she's making bad decisions. We'll see. All right. So. Next scene. Um, basically, we have Tormund and we have Derek Dundarian. Um, they are at in a part of the wall, I think, that they've escaped to that's still standing. They're walking through and they um, uh, they they are joined by who are they who's that guy Ed. from Ed. Um, they're joined and suddenly they see the little Umber boy. It's so scary, guys. Yes. He is, he's been pinned to the wall, and that little symbol that is often made around the White Walkers, and we have also seen around Daenerys, and we've seen in that cave as well, that um, John and Danny. Did we see it around Daenerys? Really? Basically, yeah. we've seen it a couple of times. So basically, in the Misa, in the Misa, Misa scene where everyone is, you know, mother, 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 the people make that motion around her and and that they, they they the way they stand around her makes that spiral and i think gerald said that uh he's seen it when the um gerald what did you say when the um dothraki? When, when drogon flies off dumps her in the field and she's surrounded by dothraki they're oh, making really? that symbol yeah it's been noted that you see that symbol around her um and they, John and Danny see it in the cave as well. And so it's obviously a White Walker symbol. What it means will be interesting um, to find out. Can't wait for that mystery to, uh, to to be unfolded. But, you know, then you see Tormund. Oh, also hilarious joke about Tormund's blue eyes. I thought it was yeah. really funny. <laughs> and then... And then, while Tormund is talking with his back to the Umber Boy, we see the blue eyes of the Umber Boy, even though he is, like, blurred out. We see the eyes, and we're like, Tormund, Tormund, look behind you. And then the little Umber Boy comes to life, and they burn him, and it is terrifying. What's going on? What is the um, Night King? What is the message? Why is it the Umber Boy? What is? What are those spirals? What's going on? So here's the question, right? Because earlier in the episode, so at the beginning of the episode, the Umber Boy requires more wagons and supplies, yes. essentially, to get his guys from wherever they are to Winterfell, right? He yeah. requests that of Sansa, and Sansa allows it. And then later in the episode, we're told that the Umbers are no longer coming. They've holed themselves up in the castle. And then uh. at the end of the episode, that's right, right? And then at the end of the episode, we see you go to the Umber's castle and there's everyone's dead. So mm. the question is, did they die before they sent that message? Mm. Did they decide to hold themselves up in the castle and then get killed? Oh, or I thought, is I that... thought it was the castle who weren't coming. Was it Karstarks? Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, the Karstarks. It is the Karstarks that weren't coming. Oh, okay. Then I'm yeah. wrong. Then I'm wrong. Because mm. I, yeah, yeah. Because I thought there was there was, may have been an information disinf a campaign of dis disinformation by the Night King, <laughs> but clearly he's not that advanced. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, the, where they are is a place called called the Old Half, and you, it's and it's it's one of the locations in the intro sequence. Between the oh. wall, Winterfell, I think, oh. um, and that 
and that's where the Umbers are based because when little Lord Umber um, takes his leave of Jon Snow early in the episode, Jon Snow tells him to go back to Old Hearth and muster as many people as he can. Mm. Mm. It was a super oh. creepy scene. I, I don't know... I, just, I thought it was a great scene because of how creepy it was, right? It really gave the mm. sense of otherworldliness. Um, this, like, I almost thought that what was going to happen was that you were going to see him, and as he was burning, you were going to see all these other blue eyes pop up behind, <laughs> behind them, right? Like in a zombie film when they don't realise that they're actually surrounded by zombies. But anyway, um, that's how the episode ends. Is that right? Or... One, one last scene. Jamie arrives. Jamie sees Bran. Bran sees Jamie. Uh, creepy eye Creepy eye Yeah, yep. so they've got history. Last last time Jamie saw Bran, he pushed him off a wall, and and uh, that's the reason why Bran cannot walk anymore. So, um, did you guys see the um, preview for next week? And I guess this is technically spoiler territory if people don't want to know anything about episode two. Um, so, spoiler warning there. But did you guys see that? I have not, and I will watch this. Watch it immediately after we finish okay. the podcast. So tell me, tell me now. Well, a big, a big part of that preview shows Jamie in front of the Council of People at Winterfell. They are clearly holding him accountable for his decisions. Daenerys says to him, "You know, I have been pretty much dreaming my entire life to kill the man who killed my father and my brother, or whatever it was." Um, so Jamie is in trouble, basically. Hmm. Well, Exciting. I don't think mm. Jamie's going to get executed just yet, but mm. <laughs> he's got to. How good would it be place. if he was? Like, if that's how his story ended, and like, <laughs> and you know, he's gone through all this, he's formed this relationship with Brienne, he's demonstrated a degree of character growth, and then he just randomly gets executed. <laughs> with his head up in It'd be freaking awesome. I, think, I mean, hey, let's step on that. I mean, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't put anything, you know, aside. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't put anything past Game Except of for the Valencar prophecy, right? Which is that Cersei will be killed by her younger brother, and it's just got to be Jamie. Yes, for It's sure. just got to be Jamie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is the Valencar prophecy in the books only, or is it in the show? Yes. Yeah, remember the scene where she meets the witch, and she... But the, the witch doesn't say it in the show. She only says oh. it in the book. Yeah, yeah. The actual uh, prophecy is not noted in the in the show, uh, but it's noted in the book. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think this segues into our theories for let's put bets down on what's going to happen. So I want to mm. put down my theory. It's not an overarching theory. It's just a a small theory for a small part of the show. I think that Cersei is pregnant. I think that. Um, Jamie is going to kill Cersei, but the baby will have been born by then, and it will be basically like, you know, like these sorts of fantasy shows, they love playing on cycles, right? So it will be similar to, you know, how um, the sacking of King's Landing, when Robert sacks King's Landing, right? The entire royal family is killed, Jamie dies as well, but the baby is left over, and I think John will pick up the baby... And John will raise the baby as a bastard, in the same way that he also was raised as a bastard. And I think Jamie and Cersei's son or daughter will uh, end up being John's surrogate son or daughter. 
That is my that is my out there theory. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of makes sense because it lines up with the Valencar prophecy, the the fact that um, that Jamie is going to kill Cersei. But I think that also it would make sense for John to like in the same way that Ned was unable to kill Danny. Is that right? No, Ned. What happened? Was I? Was uh, yes, that's true, right? Yeah, yeah. Dan- he never wanted Danny killed. Yeah, because yeah. he squirrels Danny away, right? So I think, I don't. I think John will be unwilling to kill Cersei and Jamie's child as well, and potentially that may be the break between Danny and John. Anyway. Do we have any other theories we want to put out there early and lock down so that you may reap the accolades of... (laughs) (laughs) I think Sissy is not pregnant because of the the prophecy that was shown in the um, TV show, which is that she would have three children and they would die. I don't think there's going to be another one. I think Jamie... What was that? Oh, sorry, I missed you. I think Jamie will be the one to kill her, but I think the circumstances around why he does that, I don't think they exist yet. I don't think he's going to do it just because she has ordered his execution. I think something else is going to happen, and we haven't seen that yet. I think John and Danny will absolutely have a baby together, and that baby is probably going to be the prince or princess that was promised, but potentially not. I'm not I'm not as committed to that idea as I once was, simply because there's obviously not enough time for that, and I think we need more of a resolution on the White Walker situation um, than to just let it wait for another 20 years or whatever i think john and danny will probably get possibly get married only because i think they will have a baby and this show seems to and 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 groom seems to have a thing about legitimacy um i know john himself has a massive thing about legitimacy you know what the the main reason he didn't want to have sex initially he said was that he knows what it's like to be a bastard and he doesn't want to create another bastard so I think it's inevitable they will have a baby which then leads me to say that they will probably get married but I don't know how that's all going to work because I just don't see Danny being okay with John's um, greater claim to the throne than she has but maybe she will show some growth and be okay with it the Night King I just we need to see something here I would love a twist that shows that the Night King is not the evil is not evil that there is something more to that person maybe he's the good guy maybe maybe there's maybe he wants something and maybe there's a good reason as to why he is raging forward i don't know um yeah but i'm hoping that's what i see Hmm. gerald i think we can firmly say that sunday is not pregnant given that gray worm does not have to (laughs) (laughs) thanks gerald Wow. Solid solid theory there, Jazz. Solid theory. Yeah, so, uh, but, but on a more serious note, like Anager, I really wish, I really hope that in, in some way the, the White Walkers turn out to be the good guys in the story. Like, think about it. Like, humanity has been pretty awful in the world of the show. Of the show. Um, to, to live in Westeros is to live a life that's nasty, brutish, and short. And um, an argument could fairly be made that, you know, sort of the the first men 
uh, the sons of the first men just have forfeited any right to sort of maintain the maintain um, their civilization because it's been pretty crap. And so if it turns out that the White Walkers are coming to Westeros in order to bring a new era of frosty enlightenment, then so be it. I would I would rejoice in that sort of ending. <laughs> it's quite a nihilistic ending, but okay. Mags? Anyone else, Mags? No, you know what? Uh, I, I think I'll leave it at that. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I, I can't wait to come. This is a huge episode, guys. This, this is our longest episode by far. Let's hope it recorded, Darren. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> Alright, so okay. I can't wait to be back next week. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I think this is very fun and can't wait for next week. Um, everybody who's listening, we're going to be doing this every week. Hopefully it won't be as long next week, but we'll, it's hard to contain our excitement for Thrones. That's right. So, um, <laughs> Alright, see you all next week. See you guys. Bye. 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 Bye.